No, I didn't actually attempt. Um, I haven't gotten to that point, I guess. The courage, the strength that it takes to be open and honest about this. Instead of just, you know, blaming myself that he's not here anymore. Uh, I was prepared to shoot myself. Um, and I called my family to sort of say goodbye. To be honest, I was scared reaching out for help because I was like, this could totally ruin my career. Somebody to have a more proactive approach and that he was coming to me to be that person. They found him and he committed suicide. I just started screaming. I just felt responsible. Hello, everyone. I'm Timothy Lawson, host and founder of the One Too Many Veteran Suicide Podcast and Project. It has been a long time. One Too Many took a hiatus, a sabbatical, a pause to reflect, if you will. Uh, The last episode we put out was in October. Over the past few months, I have been doing a lot of thinking and a lot of pondering on one too many and its purpose and its effectiveness and its mission and its direction and I always I knew that it needed to continue being a thing but I found myself just in a busy time of my life like last fall I was just churning out episodes as however I could and wasn't I was giving them the recognition they deserve but not really giving them the purpose and the consistency and uh, you know, it. I felt like I was just sort of going into a mode. Um, I've been able now to reset. I was at the Students Veterans of America conference uh, just a week ago, a week or two ago. It reminded me, as I gave my two sessions on suicide prevention, how Im- important these conversations are, how important it is to share these stories, how important it is for people to hear these stories whether I'm in the right zone or not regarding this project, the mission is to share the stories, and that's what I'm going to continue to do. I do want to thank everybody who has continued to stay subscribed to the show and that's been reminding me that you're waiting on new material. It's here. One Too Many's hiatus is over. We're going to work on a different type of frequency. Uh, we started this podcast uh, as a once a week thing, then a twice a week thing, then a three times a week thing, and then back to once a week, and then twice a week. Uh, that's all that business is over. It's once a week. Uh, the next couple of weeks will be stories, but moving forward, uh, we're looking at about four to five episodes a month, and it will be a story every other week, and uh, one week will be, uh, one week a month will be my momentary reflections. And then, um, another, you know, presumably the fourth week will be sort of a Q and a, I'll try to get some stuff from the audience and, and do that again. Cause people have asked me to bring that back. This episode, this is how we're going to start off. This episode is one I recorded way back in September. I want to say me even before that August, possibly. Uh, is with Zach Starr, the creator of uh, Vet Connect, and he was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. He, him, and I talked for a very long time, nearly an hour, uh, about his uh, time out of the military, an injury that he had to continue dealing with, 
and entering a state of depression along with that injury, snapping out of it, deciding to do this hike, and much more. He has since finished uh, his hike along the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, I would like to hopefully get him back, uh, as I mentioned in this in the interview, get him back to give us a stronger hindsight of sort of what the hike in all did for his emotional health. I'll have a few more housekeeping notes after the interview, but for now, I'll get right to the material. Thank you so much for sticking with us. 2016 is going to be a huge year for one too many. Uh, if you have any questions, I can be contacted Lawson at LawsonEntertainment.com. I guess I'll start with um, my military career uh, as it relates. Um, I signed up at 17, got out of high school, and um, had both my parents sign me up and went in the service. Um, super excited. Joined as a nuclear power uh, engineer in the Navy. I had flat feet, so... Uh, the Navy was about the only route I could go. I'm more of a front lines guy, you know, played sports, grew up shooting and hunting and um, just was more of a, I did martial arts and it, that was more my route. But with the flat feet, uh, the Navy was the only route I could go. So I joined the Navy um, nuclear power program, super hard. And so I was part of the statistic of guys that don't make it, unfortunately. And then went to Machinist Mate uh, for subs, which was more up my alley, mechanic-type uh, work. And during that, um, I was in Groton, Connecticut, and I ended up graduating second in my class. And I was excited about that because that allowed me to pick my station. And the guy ahead of me didn't want uh, Norfolk, Virginia, which is where a special ops boat was that deals with the SEAL teams. And it was really the closest I could get to the teams. Um at all. So I was excited about that. During schooling, though, I was having problems with uh, shoulder injury, and it was um, rotator cuff related, and really didn't think anything about it. You know, at that age, Tim, we're, we're all bulletproof and just 19 yeah. year old, 18 year old kids, and didn't think much about it. And during training, we had to do an escape uh, out of a hatch. And we had a stinky hood would shoot you to the top of the surface of the water. And we had to climb out into a life raft and I couldn't physically pull my body out of the raft. And it was at that point I had to tap out. Uh, they say, what's going on? You know, and I tell them about this pain I'm having in my shoulder and turns out that I had a rotator cuff tear. So during schooling, they tried to do therapy and find out right before graduation that that wasn't working and they decided to do surgery. So unfortunately, as all my buddies shipped off, um, I wasn't able to go anywhere and had to stay there and get surgery. Um, and that kind of made me frustrated at that time. Um, I had done all this work uh, from what I perceived as my failure from the nuclear power program and um, graduated second, was ready to go, and then I was held back uh, for the shoulder. So we did surgery and at the time uh we found this out later but they had sent one of the best shoulder surgeons from maryland to connecticut for the surgery apparently he just supervised and the surgeon that did it ended up dropping one of the five titanium screws they used to fix the rotator cuff tear uh, and at the time they said it's not going to cause you any problems um, and then he implant uh, implanted four other titanium screws so we did another year of therapy. The shoulder still, I had problems with it. Um, it did not get better. 
and they did a second surgery and then gave me a medical discharge. And some of these details to get to what I think is the more pertinent part of the story, I'm going to breeze through, but feel free to, to ask for any uh, uh, more detail on these. But so I get a medical discharge and I go through that process that I think a lot of veterans go through of, you know, we have a purpose when we're in, we have a directive that we're given. And then when we get out, we kind of are in this gray area. And I was still young. I didn't know what to do with my life. And so I went through a series of jobs and different things. And through that process, I actually found uh, dancing, which is a funny story in and of itself. But I've always had this motto of trying to overcome things I can't do. And so I used to always get made fun of for dance. And one day I got the idea to take a dance class and I took it and it was, I don't know, it was uh, like a light bulb went off. And not only were the instructors attractive, but the other women that were coming in for lessons were attractive. So yeah. my buddies are all making fun of me for this this newfound dance thing, but yet they're playing video games on Friday, and and I was out uh, dancing with people once I learned how, which was much better. So yeah. I started dancing and actually talked my way into a studio and became an instructor. And so I taught ballroom dancing for a little while, which I loved. Um, and I was really good at sales, wasn't the best dancer, but really good at sales. But as that progressed, my shoulder was giving me more and more problems. And so in the beginning, it was just I was teaching group classes. And then as I got better as an instructor, they wanted me to teach uh, more single females and harder steps. And I just couldn't keep up. So I ended up having to quit that, went back to the corporate world. Um, and really, for the next eight years, just kind of bounced around, lived in 10 states, uh, went out west and did some work as a wrangler on ranches. Um, I spent eight years growing up in Australia, so I went back and forth to visit my mom and really just kind of floated around. And then 2005 decided that uh, it was time to wake up and grow up, so I bought a house and started my own business and, uh, you know, just started to live an adult version of life, I guess. This whole time, my shoulder had given me problems. Um, and I had, when you, when you're saying giving you problems, right, we've all had pain somewhere, but like, is it failing you in some, in some performance? Is it just, is the pain getting worse? Like, what do you mean by it's giving you problems? Sure. It's, um, it's a pain and it was a pain that I was having specifically with movement of the shoulder. So, um, there was a pressure pain. I wasn't able to sleep on that side and I haven't since the late nineties, um, and there were other things I was not able to do from a motion standpoint as the pain got worse. And it seemed to um, get a lot worse depending on the movement and how active I was. So it limited things. I mean, I was using the mouse at work left-handed, um, driving left-handed only, holding the cell phone hurt, uh, putting things away in cupboards, those types of things. And you know, over the years, I had gone to various VA facilities in Wyoming and Ohio and Dayton and different states, and I was always told it was arthritis. So I was under the impression I just need to toughen up and deal with it. So fast forward to 2000 and uh, end of 2006, I had started up some dance classes in a YMCA and two YMCAs just to get back to that and was teaching just for free membership. It wasn't making money and I was running my own business. And in 05, I had found acting. So I started doing acting, which was to me a way to kind of transition from the dance world where I could still express myself 
And it also, to me, felt like a career path that my shoulder would not limit me to. So through my training in the service, I was a mechanic. I love working on my car. I can no longer do that. You know, it was all these physical limitations that it had caused. And in December of 06, I was having this catching sensation in my shoulder. I'm teaching group classes. I'm running my business. I just purchased a house. And I booked my first three acting commercials where I'm, I'm on camera. And I go to the VA and they're telling me that it's arthritis and you just, you know, we can start physical therapy again, but they always wanted to start back at square one, uh, through the VA. And that yeah. was in December of 06 in January of 07. I had just, uh, finished those three commercials less than a week later. Um, I had scheduled an appointment with a private, uh, surgeon to get a second opinion, uh, orthopedic doctor. And I was at my sister's house with my girlfriend at the time, uh, Laura and her son. And I was talking to my niece and just the way I rotated my hand when I was talking, something caught in my shoulder and it was excruciating pain. Uh, we leave, we drive a few miles to Laura's house, which is down the road on the way we go to a grocery store, uh, to get some groceries and a, and a DVD. And we walk in the door and I could not physically stand up and it was getting, worse and worse by the minute. And I told her, just go do the shopping. I'm going to go to the car. And she must have seen it in my face because about a minute or two later, she comes out to the parking lot, didn't buy what we had already picked out. And, uh, we drive to her house that night. It just got worse and worse. It was the most excruciating sharp pain I've ever had. And so we go to the ER. They don't know what to do. They take x-rays. Uh, they say you need to see your, your orthopedic doctor tomorrow. So luckily, my appointment wasn't until later in the week. Uh, we call in, they let me come in, he takes x-rays. And from the x-rays, uh, he looks at me and he says, you need surgery this week. And what had happened, the screws that they had implanted in the initial surgery had come out. And so one was floating around in the joint space and had actually wedged itself in between the glenoid and humeral head or the ball and socket of the shoulder and wedged itself in there. And it's a titanium screw. Um, so he does a gentle manipulation of the shoulder and uncatches that um, sensation. I go to the VA and really, I don't want to get lost in the details of this next two years. So I'll try to outline it, but the VA has a system of procedures. And even though this was service ending and I had had hundreds of pages of medical evidence on it and I walked in with x-rays saying, you know, that orthopedic doctor said, you need surgery this week. And so I'm trying to expedite this. I go to the VA and their answer was a three to four month wait uh, to go through the procedures of you have to see your team first, then get in a consult to ortho if you need it. Then if you need it, they'll send you to Dayton for another consult with a surgeon. And it was about a four month uh, wait, which I couldn't really afford. Um, so during the next week, we're trying to figure out how to make this happen. I had no money to speak of uh, to get any help outside. The appointments I was going to outside surgeons were costing me between $80 and $150 a piece. I was paying cash. And at that time, uh, I had submitted, this is just one example, and, and again, I don't want to get into the details of the VA system, but it plays a point uh, for down the road, but I had submitted that claim for the bill for the ER visit. And the VA had told me that it was denied because they could provide those services, even though the facility wasn't open that night when the screw 
wedged itself in my shoulder and I needed immediate help, they said, we can provide these. So a week or two, I think it was a week goes by, uh, I'm in a sling trying not to use it. I'm in the shower and it catches again. Uh, I'd taken the sling off to go in the shower. It catches again. So I stayed that night at Laura's house and toughed it out through the night, excruciating pain. We go to the VA the next thing in the morning and I say, here I am. You guys said you could fix this. And they kept me there all day without seeing anybody. I finally had to raise a ruckus around three in the afternoon. I see the orthopedic doctor uh, and the ortho team, and he just looks um, kind of confused as what to do. So at one point he tries to manipulate or manipulate the shoulder. And it was in a different way, much more forceful than the other doctor had. And at one point you hear, uh, and we see in picture evidence from the next surgery that the screw head had scraped the glenoid bone as he was trying to manipulate it. And it made a sound and I was in tears and Laura actually had to leave the room. Uh, I was in excruciating pain. He leaves, goes into the room next door and calls somebody else and was basically at a loss of what to do. Um, and she overheard part of this conversation. So at that point, and this is my, my point, they sent me back to the exact same ER after sitting there all night and all day in that pain, uh, because they could not address the situation. So the next day I go back to the orthopedic doctor. And at that point, my father said, you know, this is just money. I'll lend you the money. We need to get the surgery now. So I had the surgery immediately done through a private facility and was out a large amount of money right away. Yeah. Um, when he went in, he saw that the screw had actually been loose for a long time and basically shredded the inside of my rotator cuff. So all the pain that I was having was from this titanium screw floating around in this joint space. Uh, so he took it out and he said, you have two more that are loose in there. One's outside of the joint space. And then one is in the brachial plexus, which is the nerve center of the arm. It's kind of under your armpit. Uh, and that was the one that they initially dropped in the first surgery in 96. So it didn't fix all of my symptoms and I'm in pain out a lot of money. And I start trying to process the VA system, process a claim for temporary increase in disability while I couldn't work. So at this time, everything came to a screeching halt. Um, I couldn't do any acting jobs. Uh, my business, you know, I was holding on to that, but that was, struggling because I couldn't put the effort into it that I needed. Um, and everything was just slowly starting to fall apart. Uh, the VA decided to put me on medication at this time while I was trying to navigate this. And basically what I needed was another surgery. Um, but the surgeon I'd had didn't know what the next step was. So to fast forward, I go through a process of two years of trying to find the right surgeon. Um, and I ended up going through eight specialists, including the Cleveland Clinic, all at, an, at my own expense while the VA tried to process me through their procedures. Um, and at this time, this is really when everything started to fall apart. Uh, they had put me on medication and at one point I was on 15 pills a day and they had put me on everything from antidepressants, pain meds, muscle relaxers, uh, sleeping medication. Um, and they had me on some pretty heavy stuff, including methadone for pain management. And during this time, I think this is where a lot of veterans, especially for your podcast can relate. You go through losses. Um, and at this time I had 
a loss of confidence and a loss of self and purpose and everything that I had physically, all the attributes that I had had were taken away from me. And I couldn't use my arm for this two, two and a half year period. And I ended up going through a depression at that time. And I ended up backing away from family relationships. Uh, I ended up ruining the relationship that I had with Laura, who was probably the most supportive person I had around me. Um, and I think it's important to let veterans know that we have this bravado and we don't want to ask for help. And I think a lot of times we don't know how to accept help and that can be dangerous. And for me it was. And so here's this person who loved me, who was trying to support me. And I ended up pushing her away uh, because I didn't know how to accept that help. And so after that relationship ended, I lost my business. I wasn't able to keep up with the clientele and pretty much everything that I had used to define who I was, was stripped away. Uh, and so I went into a depression and for a period, and I don't remember how long it was, but it was, it was better part of a year. Uh, I was suicidal and having ideations and, uh, it was, my sister's kids that had kept me going at that time. Um, she had kids, one newborn and, and three others all under the age of uh, seven or eight at the time. And I was trying to see them as much as possible. Um, but really that was my inspiration. Um, but as things got worse, there were uh, two nights very specifically that I do remember that that wasn't enough uh, for me. You get to that point where none of it makes sense anymore. It doesn't rationally, it doesn't matter. You know, when you're at that point, the ripple effect or col collaborate or um, the amount of damage that can be done from you deciding to end things is not really that much of a concern anymore. You just want the pain to stop. And one night in particular, I was, uh, I was having a conversation with myself and I had a handgun and I had locked it away in my closet and actually piled a bunch of boxes on top of the, the gun case specifically. Uh, I guess as mental roadblocks to get through because I knew if I got to that point and unlocked that it would be um, there wouldn't be a conversation. I wouldn't sit there and, and wonder about the outcome. If I had gotten to the gun case, um, I would have ended it and that would have been definitive. I got a phone call from my dad and I don't remember why I answered it. Uh, and he must've heard it in my voice because he drove 45 minutes to my house, which he never did. And I'm sitting there at the table and he comes in and we have a conversation. And I was in so much debt from the, the medical bills, the inability to work, everything had backed up. They were trying to foreclose on my house. My car was out for repossession. All of my bills were backed up. And he said, you know, Zach, it's just money. Uh, he wrote me a check and said, let me at least relieve this financial pain and burden for you right now, and we'll figure out what to do 
about your shoulder. So that helped. Um, a couple months later, I went through another evening the same, and I ended up driving to my brother's house. Um, I had to get away from my from my handgun. I mean, I knew I, I had to get away from the situation. And I drove to his house, which was a few miles down the road, and uh, stayed there that night. Um, did he know? Did he know why you're there? I don't know that he was totally aware of how bad the situation was. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think he did at that point. Um, and he comforted me, comforted me as best he could. And through that, uh, you know, we fast forward and after seeing eight professionals, including the Cleveland Clinic and other uh, facilities, we finally found a doctor who looked at me and said, I know what is wrong, why you're having this pain. And it was the first person through everything I'd gone through with the VA, through the other surgeons, everybody threw their hands up and said, we don't know what's going on. We don't know why you're having this pain. And they were really apprehensive about touching the situation. And here's a doctor, he's in Cincinnati, who we had gotten his name from a referral from somebody else that had used him. And he said, I, I, I think I can help you. And I have to tell you, that was a turning point for me because throughout this whole thing, the worst part was losing hope. After you go through three surgeries and you go through all these years of pain and doctors, you end up losing hope that there is even an option for you to get fixed. And not only that, you compound that with the pain that I was in. And even through all the medications I was taking, it didn't relieve the pain. It made it manageable. Uh, again, uh, the VA was still sitting on my case for a temporary increase in disability. This is two years later. Uh, they had processed it at one point after eight months and said, we don't have any information on the last six months, so you need to um, reapply with an update of the last six months. Um, so I was going through that process. I had a fourth surgery. Uh, he did a bicep tendinesis. The bicep tendon was frayed and shredded. Uh, they did a bicep tendinesis where they cut the bicep tendon out and shortened that. And he did a fix of the rotator cuff, which had another small tear in it. And at that point, I stopped the medication I was taking. I cut it in half five days after the surgery. And then a week later, I stopped everything. Um, I can't describe the state of mind that I was in uh, during those years where I was on all of that medication. Uh, I did. I had a friend who, who was with me at one point in a store and I'm, I'm standing in the aisle and he looked at me and he goes, are you going to pick something? And I said, what do you mean? Yeah. And he goes, well, you've been standing there staring at the same shelf for the last five minutes. And I just it was a good analogy of how I spent that two years. I was just in this fog and this, I was just, I had too many medications in me and I, I wanted to get all of that out and be normal again. So surgery number four really gave me life back. Um, it took away a lot of that pain that I had had and gave me an opportunity to clean everything else up. Now at this point I had already incurred over $40,000 in, in debt and 
I want to go to something that you, that you refer to in a lot of your blogs, and one of them is a renewed purpose that you talk about often. Um, going back to Laura and I, one of the things that she had done for me, I had this bravado, and I'm sure other veterans can relate, that I was a young veteran and I didn't need the assistance that was out there. You know, I thought, I can't use my arm, I'll do something else, I'll do phone sales, I'll, I'll find another way. These services that are out there are for other veterans, they're for combat veterans, they're for veterans who've been in the system for a long time. And she was the one that pointed out to me that you served your time and you were in and those benefits are there for you as well. So as I'm trying to go through this labyrinth and, and get access to these benefits, uh, I had a choice. And when we showed old x-rays to the surgeon, um, in 2007, he saw that the initial screws from the initial surgery in the 90s were not in placed in the bone correctly. The one was dropped and then two of the screws were placed in soft tissue, which meant they were coming out at some point. It was at that point that I could have filed a Federal Tort Claims Act against the VA. And I think this is a crucial piece. You know, there's a quote that I often refer back to, which is the measure of a man is not what happens to him in life but how he chooses to deal with those situations. And I, it was at that point that I had a choice. Do I be the victim? Am I the victim in all of this and try to process a claim against the VA for malpractice, not acknowledging that those screws were loose? Maybe it could have prevented 10 years of that screw floating around and causing, you know, irreversible damage. And instead, through Laura's help, I decided to become an advocate. And so together we started a little project that would help veterans um, and bring awareness to the problems that veterans are having, whether it be finding help or processing claims. Um, unfortunately, after I'd incurred all this debt, I couldn't focus on that. And I really needed to get myself better. Um, everything that I had gone through, uh, I needed to fix myself. And so that's what I did over the next few years. Um, and as I did, my shoulder got worse, which we had a, you know, we had an idea that it would, the surgery wasn't going to fix everything. The damage that had been done from that screw floating around and the screws that were still loose in there was, it was too much to, for him to fix it. So I went down to Austin, Texas, um, to pursue the acting career, uh, and was having a lot of problems with my shoulder. Um, it was getting a lot worse and got processed through the VA down there in Houston. And that took over uh, six to eight months to get an MRI on my shoulder. And I took it back to the surgeon in Cincinnati and uh, basically had to have another surgery. So I had another surgery, surgery number five in December of last year, 2014. And before that, in the process the VA, one of the VA doctors had told me I had decided to do a trail called the John Muir Trail, which is a backpacking trail, 260 miles uh, in the Sierra Nevadas. Now, when I was growing up in Australia for eight years at the age of 14, I had to live in the bush for six months as part of school, which was uh, at the time pretty brutal. But looking back, it was the best experience I've ever had. And I also, like I said, worked on a ranch in Wyoming. That was my outlet. To be out in nature was my 
um, it was my peace. It was my centering and my way to rebalance. And once I bought my house in 05, I had kind of gotten away from all of that. So I thought, I'm going to go on this hike. Um, I'm going to have surgery in December. Everything will be good. It'll be fine. And uh, the VA doctor looked at me and said, well, you need to quit backpacking. And Tim, it was at this point that I had a, a pivot point, if you will. I had already stopped so many things in my life because of my shoulder. It had already affected yeah. so much of what I do from how I open a refrigerator to how I pour coffee to, um, like I said, even holding a cell phone. Uh, I had already changed so many things. I had even picked up golf. I played golf one-armed with my left hand. I went out with a golf coach and I, in doing research, had found this organization of one-armed golfers, whether they were amputees or, or born with only one limb. And I thought to myself, so, so were you, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, were you, were you swinging? Like, was your left arm your front arm or was it like coming from behind? Like, does that make so, sense? Yeah. I, I, uh, I talked to the local high school uh, golf coach that my father knows and, um, yeah, he and I went to the driving range and I tried both ways and it, it was a determination. I saw a video of other guys who could do this and there was one guy who can drive it like 350 yards and I thought, and I think this is a key for anybody going through any kind of recovery is sometimes you lose that hope like I talked about and for me seeing that video was hold on, I'm putting limitations on myself and there are other people out there who are doing this and thriving. And it was a way for me to get back to some kind of physical, physical activity. So the golf coach and I go to a range, he had left-handed clubs and right, and I tried both ways. And so I realized I have more control as my left hand as my backhand. Okay. So, um, yeah, so now I play golf one-handed. I'm not great. It's, uh, it's, it's, it makes for a long day. Um, yeah. But <laughs> what are you doing this weekend? Golfing the whole weekend. The whole weekend. <laughs> Starting Saturday morning, hoping I'll be wrapped up by Sunday evening. <laughs> Actually, he was playing with a friend, and a guy was walking through, and we let him play through. and And he looked at me, and he goes, "You must have a lot of patience." <laughs> <laughs> so I lose quite a few golf balls uh, when I hit it far enough to even lose them, but. It, it gave me back that hope that, hey, I can actually get out and still do something. So um, it, it – I lost my train of thought where I was before that. You've given up so much. You'd adapted. And now that they're asking you to stop backpacking, yeah, which is so, something that you're passionate about. So the hike – I mean, that's all I had left. I, I, I got back into cycling. I had gotten way out of shape. And – I couldn't even uh, hold my handlebars to cycle anymore after last summer. And so when the VA doctor told me that you need to not do this trail and you need to qu uh, quit backpacking, um, I just made a decision. I said, you know what? He's right. I don't need to do this trail. Um, I need to do more. And through my research on the John Muir Trail, I had found a trail called the Pacific Crest Trail. And it's a, instead of 260 miles, it's a 2,659 mile hiking trek from the border of Mexico to the border of Canada. It's amazing. And I had decided to do that, to get back to my roots. And uh, it, at that point, I had committed to it. Whether my surgery in December went well or didn't, um, I was committed to this. And had the surgery in December, uh, 
And I remember when I woke up, my friend who took me there to the surgery down in Cincinnati, uh, the first thing I said is, did you tell him about my hike? And what did he say? And she looked at me and said, well, you're not going to like it. Um, but he wasn't able to fix it. And so going through that surgery, uh, he looked at the condition of the shoulder and said, a joint replacement is the only thing that's going to relieve your pain if that works. Um, there's just too much damage done over the years and joint replacement was what was next. Um, I had already committed to doing this hike and for a number of reasons for myself, um, one of the, one of the biggest things that stuck with me through that depression was I didn't have answers on that. I looked back at myself and I, for a while, saw it as a flaw in my own character of You know, I was suicidal, and that's something that that I had to accept, that I have to live with, that I'm going to, to share with whoever comes into my life, um, you know, relationship-wise, and it's something that I have to own up to. And for a long time, I had no answers on what was the cause of that. Um, you know, I could try to explain it by all the medications I was taking and the the mental state that all of that had me in, but I really didn't have an answer. So for me, I've always thought of myself as a strong person and to put myself back in a position where I was doing a 2,600 mile hike that most people don't finish because of the mental, I mean, it's a physical challenge, but also the mental challenge of day to day hiking 20 to 25 miles. If I can, through that pain and and push through the pain of my shoulder at the same time, I can prove to myself that, yeah, I have overcome this and I have built my my own inner walls and strength back up to a point where this is not going to interfere anymore. Because to be honest, it interfered with every relationship I've had since then. I kept everybody at bay. It was, I don't know if this is going to come back. And as you know, depression doesn't have a switch. There's no switch to turn it off. It's something that I will probably deal with the rest of my life and you have to know how to combat that. Um, you know, you said something in one of your blog in one of your podcasts that was very powerful and sorry if I butcher the way that you said this, but you said you've learned to deal with those things that are coming to you by defending against them versus the things that are in you and tolerating them. Yeah. Did I get that Man. close? <laughs> yeah, that's pro probably close enough. Uh, I can't even think how I exactly said it, so you're probably paraphrasing it just as well as I could. Uh, it's uh, I'm not gonna lie. I'm very the fact that you've you've referenced like two or three things uh, that you've heard on the podcast makes me feel so satisfied with how well this show has gone and in the small hiatuses that it's had to take while I collect more stories and the difficulties of getting people to listen to a show about suicide and trying to be a source of 
hope and solution while the media is full of the noise of advocacy and awareness and it uh you are you are inspiring me to to do more and more with this show as you continue to reference things you've heard in this podcast i really appreciate it well i i think it's amazing and and you know we can talk to that uh the fact that you've gone out and and done this and taken this project on um because it's a conversation that we need to have we need to start the conversation um and i feel like a lot of times there's a stigma around depression and suicide and a lot of it is to not talk about it it's not there or we acknowledge it yes it's there okay let's have a happy moment and let's move on and like i said there's no trigger for this there's no there or there's no switch you don't turn it off you don't um have a meeting and then say okay now i'm all better and, and shut it down this is something that those of us that have dealt with will deal with continually and i think part of that process is learning how to learning how to combat that and like you said to, to defend against those things coming at us and not just accepting that hey this is part of me and i have to tolerate it and yeah. so for me that's what this hike was was i'm going to push my boundaries and I'm going to do it and I know I'm going to be in pain. And that's the mental hurdle that's been the most difficult. And so I made the plan and set off to do this uh, huge adventure. And at the same time to go back to my focus that Laura and I initially started on the veteran advocacy program. So through that, I have started a foundation called Vet Connect. And the purpose is uh, it will be an online resource to reconnect veterans to hope through inspirational success stories such as myself and others and in doing so to just show them that you can push through the pain and that there is life after injury and that injury is not necessarily always physical it could be an emotional uh, or mental injury as well and if you push through that pain if you take a step every single day in the right direction you will get to where you need to be and you will reach those goals and i think a big part of my rehabilitation, if you will, is on this hike, it's given me renewed purpose. Um, it, it also gives you goals. And I think that's something that a lot of veterans, when we fall into uh, suicide or when we experience that, we lose those little goals. And those are the things that keep you on track. It's almost like a compass, uh, you know, on a ship in a storm. You can't see the horizon. You can't navigate by the stars. And if you just go the way the wind blows, you're going to get lost. So you have to have these little goals. You have to have those compass readings every once in a while to keep you on track. And so that's what this hike has, has allowed me to do. Yeah. Zach, if, uh, I have a couple questions specifically about your hike. But before that, I, just a few uh, comments on some of the notes that I've been taking while you've been talking. One You've listened to a good number of of my interviews, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but I was recently contacted by Gimlet Media, uh, which is the production company that does the startup podcast, Reply All. It was started by someone who was involved with This American Life. Like, they do legit stuff. And they contacted me, just, just wanted to learn a little bit more about my podcast, and the guy that I was talking to gave said that, you know, in podcasting where there's so much production now on the high level and stuff like that, he said it was really refreshing to hear a show 
that was interview based, but still allowed the guest to just openly tell their story. Like there's no, I do very little interrupting between the start of the story to where the, when, you know, the guest sort of naturally wraps up or rounds out their, uh, their initial story. Some, some conversation, some interviews become more conversational than others, but I really try to just let the guest tell their story. So now as someone who, uh, who's listened to the show a number of times and is now telling their story on the show, you know, how do you feel about, do you think, do you think there's, do you think that's really what makes this show valuable? And this is why it, it's that people can resonate it is it's just the opportunity to just exhaust your story and get everything out there. You know, I do. Um, I think that on, on a number of different levels, the first is that's really what we're talking about is starting the conversation and what your platform allows us to do is to have that conversation. Um, you know, somebody said something that resonated with me on, on suicide, which was as a friend of somebody going through depression and suicide, when you get that call, you don't have to know what to say. You just have to be there. And I think in somewhat in that light, what your platform allows us to do is to talk and without you interrupting, it allows us to get out the things that we want to say, but from a listener's standpoint, I think it's a more natural approach and it allows them to pick up on things um, that we may include or the emotion behind it rather than just a, here's 10 questions that I want to ask you bullet point. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great platform and, and I think the fact that you've kind of been a pioneer and you came out to tell your own story, which is not easy to do. Um, yeah. It's hard to put yourself out there and, you know, for those of us who have come after and done these interviews, it's easier. You know, you're, I forget how many interviews you've had to this point, but with each one, it's easier for the next person to come through and say, man, there's somebody else who feels the same way I do. Man, there's somebody else who's been through what I've been through. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's exactly, and that's why the, and I've said this before, that's why the, the logo and, or like the title is one comma two comma many. It's the idea that once we hear a few of these stories, we're going to realize that this is something that's affecting a lot of people. Um, so you, uh, you mentioned way back at, you know, I'm referencing probably the middle of your story where you, you talked about the first night where you really started experiencing suicidal behavior. And you said you were having a conversation with yourself. I think this is something that I'd like to be free to elaborate a little bit more on. When you said you're having a conversation with yourself, were you actually trying to uh, navigate your own thoughts? Were you trying to talk yourself out of a decision to take your own life? Were you trying to talk yourself into why it made sense? Like, what was the narrative of the conversation you were having with yourself? It was trying to talk myself down, trying to rationalize all the reasons why I shouldn't. And as as I would pose those issues, they just seemed so trivial and didn't matter. Like I said, luckily for me, my sister's four kids uh, were a big part of what stopped me. And for me, I couldn't, and it's, it's a weird um, thought, but I couldn't pass that pain onto them. I didn't feel like that was fair for me to, if I took my own life, 
that would pass everything that I was feeling onto these kids and forever they would have to answer to that. And that made me feel even, even more helpless because here I was at the breaking point and I could take no more and there was an out. And then the more I thought about that, I thought, I don't even have an out. I can't even take my own life because what's that going to do to them? And, you know, like I said, those two nights when I, uh, I was, I was really close. Um, and those two nights that even that wasn't strong enough at that point. Um, I really think if my father hadn't come over, um, you know, we might not be having this conversation. And, and unfortunately that's part of suicide, as you know, that at that point you, all the collateral damage doesn't matter anymore. It's irrelevant. And I'm sure you went through that when you decided, um, to take those steps. So, yeah. And the, the, the last point, this is sort of a comment. Um, but you know, we, I hear, um, you know, the, the, the phrase, you know, there's no off switch for, for depression. I think it's important also to know that there's no on switch either, right? Like this isn't, this is a, you know, it's, it's almost like a liquid state, if that makes sense. Like you sort of just flow in it and out of it. And sometimes it's really, it's difficult to, to know what got you there and what got you out. Like sometimes you've been times where I've gone to bed depressed and woke up. Okay. And it's like, then it's like, I wonder if it was just uh, this, the wrong chemicals during the flowing through my body or something, you know, and it's, it's difficult. And I've tried to emphasize in my momentary reflections before, you know, it's difficult to, to notice what the on switch and off switches are for, you know, what's, what is actually starting and ending these states of depression. But if you can't identify things that are, that become these switches um, or that at least can help you defend, like like you said, defend against these, these feelings, then you can sort of get ahead of those feelings and you can, while you can't, you know, hit the off switch for it, you can definitely bar against anything that might, you know, strongly get you into that state of mind. Absolutely. And I mean, if I, if I can take a second to speak on, go ahead through vet connect, one of my main goals is not only to connect veterans with hope through success stories, because I think that's a big part of it. It, Through my experience, I know that once you lose hope, that's, that's a steep slope. And I think another part to that is in prevention. And so many times through prevention, you know, the conversation goes to kind of that day or seeing the signs and how do we intervene or how do we step in with our friends um, if they show those signs. And so what I want to do through Vet Connect is let's start addressing that before, way before it even gets to that point. You know, um, the transition through the military service and civilian life again, there are a lot of ups and downs that go through that. And suicide is not just limited to those who have been through physical um, challenges, you know, or PTSD or TBI. Uh, It also has to do with other factors that come in and and affect you through regular life and through that transition. So I think taking a proactive approach to that and making sure that veterans know about the services that are out there. Um, I was very strategic in picking the term Vet Connect because eventually we want to connect all the resources 
into one location to make it easier for veterans to navigate. So wherever they may be and whatever they may be going through, they can pick up that phone and make one call and get it, get their issues addressed because it's extremely hard to try to navigate the systems that are out there while you're going through depression because each roadblock seems larger and larger than the last one and eventually people just give up so, so I, I think prevention is i think prevention starts way before that and addressing like you said those signs those triggers that come up um, if we can take care of the majority of those before they become problems i think we limit the amount of influence because correct me if i'm wrong I think most people who go through suicide um, or severe depression, it's not one incident that happens. It's usually a collaboration of things that come about. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, we could that's a whole other whole yeah. that's a whole other <laughs> show on its on its own talking yeah. about that. But it's uh, you know, but it is important to 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 notice that a lot of times someone. When someone becomes suicidal, they they hang on like the, that the thing that's that's making them suicidal that time, right? That that right. moment. And a lot of times, as a bystander, you just want to, you want to address that one thing. And sometimes it seems sort of like trivial or even like like unimportant, right? It's like oh, like you know this this person did this thing to me, and it seems like they're hanging on to that. It's like why would you be suicidal about that? And it's not necessarily about what that. It's not about that exact event, but it's about all of the crisis that they've had emotionally leading up to that event and that event has become the catalyst into suicidal behavior um so let's talk about the hike in general we've got to you know zach i really appreciate you talking to us about uh you know your story you know about your shoulder in the military and you know your, uh what, what was the first job that you tried applying for that, that you tried to get something with nuclear oh yeah I, I went in as a nuclear power engineer nuclear power i didn't know you could even do that um <laughs> You've gotten very uh, vulnerable with us, and you've you've shared a very powerful story, and I know people are going to really appreciate and resonate with it. On a much uh, lighter note, talking about the renewed purpose and now how this hike has been able to do it for you, I have a few uh, general questions about your hike, because as someone who enjoys the outdoors and hiking, I am genuinely curious. Um, Yeah, so what, uh, you know, what... What are the emotion? You know, the, the men, you said the, you said the mental challenges, and I know that there's the mental challenge of when you feel your legs and other parts of your body ache to like mentally tell yourself to physically move on. But what other mental challenges are you having uh, out there? Is it being isolated? Is it fighting? Uh, you know, being environments not used to. Like, what mental challenges are you really experiencing out there? Yeah, it's. Um... There's been there's been a lot, you know, the I mean, the first thing I'll speak to is obviously the physical part becomes a mental battle. And that's why so many people don't complete this trail. Um, It's one thing to go out for a week, maybe even a month and do a long hike. And, you know, the end is coming. Um, Your body adjusts as you start hiking. But when you're doing I'm up to 25 miles a day now. And when you are. Hiking 25 miles a day, you can only carry certain days of food. Um, And depending on if you're through the Mojave Desert or different places, you have limited water resources as well. So you're out there, you're on vacation, you have no agenda, but you do. And that is you have to hike 25 miles the next day as well. 
and the day after that. And chances are that's going to be six days until you can reach another resupply box that you've mailed yourself. Um, so it's a physical challenge, but it's also those days when you wake up. And I think in day-to-day -day life, we allow ourselves to um, take a break from whatever it may be. You don't get that opportunity. Uh, so from the physical standpoint, it's just the day-to-day-to-day -day -to -day for five months um, takes a toll. For me personally, it's been a lot of the mental uh, challenge of the hike. You know, um, I've always been a people person, but I also appreciate the time that I have alone. So I've done this hike solo and you run into other hikers along the way. Um, but, you know, honestly, Tim, it's dealing with your demons as you go through. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and some music, but you do have a lot of time to think and reflect um, one of the demons that I, that I have that I frequently deal with is, you know, we talk about this statistic of 22 veterans that commit suicide a day. And I think that gets glazed over as a statistic. And I have some level of regret in that in 2007, I didn't have the strength to go through with my foundation. And I think about those numbers of what if I was able to help even just one back then? And then all the numbers of veterans who have committed suicide in that time when it took me to get better. And so I know you have to work on yourself before you can help others. And so I've done that and I continue to do that. Um, for me, the biggest mental challenge is when I'm going through those miles and those days, the pain has increased as I've gone through this journey. Um, it's gotten a lot worse. I don't sleep on trail. It's usually, uh, you know, I'm taking Ambien and that usually gets me through two, three hours, but the rest of the night I'm in pain and it's uh, just a series of 20 minute naps that breaks you down. But I continue to think about, and, and I really want to address this because I think this is important The 22 veterans that commit suicide a day. Like I said, that gets glazed over a lot as a statistic, but they have names and they have faces and they have stories that need to be told. And they have lives that need to continue. If I could jump in a ship and, and, and fast forward a year and look at the veterans who will commit suicide next year and ask them how many my story has, has, has helped. And even if one just put his hand up and said, yes, your story helped inspire me to push through the pain and to choose life. How could I look at that veteran in the face now and say, the pain that I'm going through for this next month or even this next day is not worth your life. I can't make that. So that is a very profound way of looking at it. Wow. It, I have to thank the veterans that are out there because everybody that's going through this has helped inspire me. You know, I'm trying yeah. to put this story together and I'm, I'm putting a documentary together at the end of this uh, that I'll put out there to help inspire other veterans. But I'm inspired um, by other veterans who have pushed through the pain and the ones who will in the future. And that's what gets me through those days. Wow. Zach, is there any is there anything else that we haven't touched on, whether whether it's your you know your suicide experience your experience with suicide your 
your hike, your service, you know, just the the veteran community in general. I know a lot a lot of times when guests come to uh, to the show, they have a, a few things they'd like to make sure they talk about. Sometimes they don't get it all addressed in the main conversation. Is there anything left hanging that you want to make sure we get out there? Yeah, I mean, I think if you have another two hours, we could cover some other stuff. But um. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, you know, you are you're where you're you just you just finished Oregon at the time of this recording. Correct. Yeah, so you know you're you're almost done, but you still have plenty plenty to go. You know, I'd be I was planning on releasing this probably. You know, one, I don't know. I I don't know if I want to release this like like soon or if you know it'll be a fun it'll be a cool release. You know, at the end, like all right, he's done this. Now here, listen to him talk about it. But regardless, I'd love to you know, talk to you down the line, you know, um, maybe shortly after and hear maybe as you have full hindsight of the whole experience, how it affected you emotionally and, you know, what sort of feedback you've gotten from other veterans, et cetera. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, that would be great. If I can just speak on that last, that last thing, the first thing I want to do is say thank you, um, Tim, for the, the amount of courage that it's taken to be a pioneer in this space and to come out. And like I said, it's, it's one thing for us to share our stories. It's much more difficult as one of the first people to come out and, and to do that on this platform and say, not only am I going to share it, but I'm going to start a podcast and have the faith that in through sharing these stories on this platform, it will help other veterans do the same and it will start the conversation. So I want to thank you for that. That is, um, thank you. It's my pleasure. You know, I've enjoyed listening to the podcast while I'm on trail and hearing other stories. Um, the one thing that I do want to address with veteran suicide, which I don't hear enough of, is as I've reflected, especially on this hike about my own situation and tried to look back and say, what could I have done differently throughout this whole thing? This is something that I did before this hike, I, which is it is easier for you to ask for help before you need it. And I'm going to repeat that. It's easier to ask for help before you need it for a number of reasons, because it's easier to call your friend and say, hey, I'm going through a few things and I just want to let you know that, you know, I want to see if it's okay if I call in with you when I'm going through the roughest moments. And what that will do is open the door, it opens the conversation, but what it also does is it allows that person to think about how they're going to handle it. You know, when I showed up at my brother's doorstep, he was bombarded by the situation that had no idea it had gone to that extent. And I think if I had done that ahead of time and said, hey, can I use you as a, as a, as a source of, of communication and comfort, I think it would have been better for him to be able to think about how to handle that ahead of time. So I think Really, it's about asking for help before you need it. And then those channels of communication are open. Those people are aware, and they also will start looking into the situation. They'll start act actively looking for signs. They may even bring up a uh, conversation and ask how you're doing before it gets to that point where you need to make the call. I know that was a long conversation, but there's just so much insight and reflection in hindsight that's given on how we dealt with his injury with depression with the people around him the value of going on this hike and uh, I'm just really 
really glad that he was able to, to tell so much about his story. You've been tuned in for a long time. I'm going to keep this last housekeeping note short. Uh, I'm switching hosting feeds, which means the feed that you're listening to right now, if you're subscribed to iTunes, you're at the right, you're, you, you don't have to do anything different, but uh, when the old feed gets disabled, a number of, a lot of my episodes from 2015 will probably be removed from iTunes, which means I will be going back and re-updating the current feed uh, with that material. So um, there may be a week sometime in the near future where episodes go missing and then a dozen or so episodes just automatically get thrusted back into the feed, ones that you may have already heard. Just letting you know that that may happen. Do not be alarmed. That's just everything catching up with itself again. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I know my guests really value the opportunity to be able to talk to you and to share their story with you. And I know that you appreciate them stepping forward and doing so. So uh, on behalf of myself and Zach, thank you so much for listening. One too many project.com. That's O N E the number two many project.com for more on my project, the podcast and how we can prevent veteran suicide. Take care.